Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Well laid with the bounty of everything we can imagine that God has done for us. And so as we jump into it, there's a few things I want to sort of note and set aside uh, as we uh, look at it. And the first thing is, is that Paul is writing this passage from prison. Paul is in a Roman prison cell as he writes this, and yet that is not the sort of typical language that someone in prison you might expect to give. You would expect if, I don't know, I've never been to prison um, as an inmate um, yet. Uh, Nevertheless, I probably wouldn't be writing this beautiful picture of all of the glories of God's grace and how wonderful it is and how hopeful I am for you. I would probably be a bit darker. I would probably be a little bit, you know, uh, more downcast. But Paul is laying out this rapid fire feast. In fact, um, it's actually broken up for us in English uh, into multiple sentences. But in the original language, this is actually all just one sentence. And Paul is just like tripping over himself, adding complexity to the sentence as he keeps going. Because Paul wants the Ephesians and he wants us to be stunned. In the same way when you, you know, have you ever met a child? Yeah, you've met a child? Have you ever talked to a child about something they're excited about? If you get a child talking about something that they're excited about, they just don't stop. They just keep going. And then, and then, and then, and also, and also, did I tell you about? And that that kind of ex... Paul is kind of going low-key child mode here because he is just so excited, so stunned, and so in awe. In many ways, this is a tasting menu of the gospel of Jesus prepared by one of the greatest chefs in the world. You guys all know my love of food. This is no surprise. Um, and I have a, we have dear friends, Angie and I, uh, that we will occasionally travel with. And when we travel with them, we always uh, base our travels around what restaurants we're going to go to. Like, let's go to this city in order to go to this restaurant. Like, that's the point of our travel. And our, our friend has this thing that he does uh, whenever somebody brings out a plate of food that is like really, really excellent looking, where he waggles his fingers like this. He's just so delighted. Like, whoo, he gets so excited. That's what Paul is trying to evoke in us as we read this passage. And so as we get into it, remember that this is meant to create delight. This is meant to create joy. And so it's appropriate for this season. But it also, as we look at this idea of the death and resurrection of Jesus, is meant to shake us out of the focus that we have on this world. The way that we live our lives day to day is very material. There's an explanation for everything. Why did it rain so much yesterday? Well, it rained so much yesterday because there was a a warm front that ran into a cold front and precipitation. I don't know. I didn't study meteorology, but somebody did, and they can tell us the answer for why it rained yesterday and why the weather will be gorgeous tomorrow evening. Somebody can tell us that. Somebody has the answer to almost any question we have in our lives. And not only that, but we have access to it through our little black mirrors. And so we're able to kind of look around at the world, and if we don't know an answer to something, oh, There it is. But what this passage wants us to do is to shake us out of the idea that the world is just material, that our lives, 
interact with things that we cannot see all the time. This wants to explode the imminent frame that we live in. It's something like um, uh, years ago when Avatar, the movie, came out. When people saw that in 3D, people were shocked and astonished. There was actually a problem um, that people had that they would leave the theater and get really depressed uh, because it wasn't real, because it felt so real. The colors were so vivid. The 3D was better than any other 3D they'd ever seen. And it was just so amazing that they would leave and be like, oh, I have to go like street park my car now and I can't fly around like that. I, th- this idea of what this passage is doing is trying to, to burst our ideas with the beauty of what God is doing in our lives and has already done. Except in this passage, it's not like Avatar where we walk away disappointed. Instead, we take it with us everywhere we go. Just one more note um, before we dive into the passage, and that's this. This passage has a strong emphasis on the mechanics, um, the mechanisms that God uses to bring salvation to his people. As you heard me read, you heard words like chosen, predestined, before in the foundation of the world. Almost every verse is punctuated with one of these words. Now listen, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm very happy, maybe even excited to talk about all of those words. They're great words. But this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. What I want us to focus on is the benefits that those things bring to us, all the beauty of redemption that God has given us, all the gifts And so if you're interested in talking about all the the mechanics of when God did this and how God did this, happy to talk to you afterwards. But what I want us to focus on is what God has given us, all the spiritual blessings. That's what he says in the first verse that I read, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, everything that God has done for us through his son. And so the first benefit as we read through this passage that Jesus brings to us is that we are holy and blameless. And so Paul begins by relying on his sort of training as a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the the best at, at sort of understanding what the Old Testament said and what every single one of the laws meant. And so when Paul says that we're holy and blameless, he's using that terminology from the Old Testament because blameless is what it was when you had made the right sacrifices, when you had repented properly, when you had gone through the steps in order to have your sin purged through the sacrifices. That was what blameless meant, but holiness was something different. In the Old Testament, holiness was reserved for God. Holiness was unobtainable. Blamelessness was hard. You had to work at it. You had to keep up with your sort of receipts. You had to have constant vigilance, but holiness was off the table. But in Christ, Paul starts out by saying, we are holy and blameless, not because of our moral works, not because of our proper sacrifices. Rather, Jesus has already made us holy and blameless through his life and death. Our sins are fully forgiven so that we are blameless in the sight of God. But it's not just that our sins are forgiven. It's not just that God goes, okay, you're qualified to get in the door now. Rather, our sin-deadened souls are made alive in the very presence of God. You and I, right now, Paul says, are alive in the presence of God before his faith, and he welcomes us. He wants us 
there. He is excited to see us. And Paul uses past tense verbs throughout this whole passage. For those of us who are trusting in Christ, this is a settled truth about us. Now, if we're honest about the actual sort of happenings in our life, what happens day to day in our lives, we are not, in fact, holy and blameless. I know I'm not. But much of the Christian life is beginning to live into the identity that God has already given to us, that God has declared over us. He has given us this identity. He has given us this name. And now we begin to live like it. It's like the trope of, I feel like every five years there's a new movie that follows this trope. Um, some woman is just a run-of-the-mill gal living her life in a town, and she finds out that she's the princess of some made-up country, and now she has to learn how to live her life as the princess of this made-up country, and she has to figure out what to do with the forks and, you know, and the montage of her learning to dress up. And you have all seen, there's like 35,000 of these movies. Every few years, there's a new one. But the trope of all of those movies is that she is given the title of princess, and then she has to learn what that means and live into that identity. That's what our Christian lives are like. Church, you are holy. Church, you are blameless in the sight of God. What would it look like for you and me as followers of Jesus to learn to live like that, like what has already been declared over us? But not only are we holy and blameless, but we've been adopted by God because Jesus, because of Jesus, we have been spared death and slavery to sin. But more than that, we are given an inheritance as trueborn sons. It's interesting um, that Paul here and in Galatians doesn't use the, the word that uh, the English Standard Version often translates brothers and sisters. He actually uses the specific word for sons. Now, that might seem like a small detail, or maybe Paul's just being a little chauvinistic here, but rather it's an intentional choice by Paul. Because in Roman law, it was the son who inherited the estate of the family. And so what Paul says is that those of us, both male and female Christians, have been adopted as the heirs of God's kingdom, of God's promises. Jesus, the son of God, secures for us the same future that awaits him. All of the things that will be true of Jesus in eternity, all of the joy that he will experience, we will experience along with him as his adopted children. And Paul wants to be clear that this is a huge blessing. All of the benefits and joys are ours. And so we don't have to live like orphans. We have already been adopted. We don't have to constantly live with the pressure of proving ourselves as worthy. Think about every, think about every orphan story you've ever heard, whether it's something from Dickens or Newsies or, I don't know, there aren't any new orphan stories these days. I think it's not cool to write about them anymore, I guess. But the orphan constantly has to prove themselves, constantly has to assert their worthiness. They have to make sure everybody notices them. But that isn't us. We don't need to do anything more. We don't need to perform. We have already been given the status as sons. We have already been adopted. And so we can lay down our moral performance 
and live as sons of the king. We can let go of our grip on trying to prove that we're worthy of it and receive the fact that God is the one who has made us worthy. We can enjoy our inheritance. And this adoption that we are given comes from the fact that we have been redeemed and forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Paul again goes back to his Old Testament uh, knowledge. The blood of the lamb caused God to pass over the Israelites on the night of Passover. The blood in these sacrifices was a picture that sin needs to be atoned for. Sin needs to be paid back. And last week when we read Genesis 3, we, we saw the hint of that sacrifice. We saw the the, the hint with the animal skins uh, being made for Adam and Eve after they sinned. But here, it becomes fully clear in the death of Jesus that God is working to forgive his people from their sins. Jesus, the spotless, sinless one, dies. He dies a death he doesn't deserve so that the sinful people might be reconciled to God. Jesus' death on the cross was specific payment for your sins and mine. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever they would make a sacrifice, a lot of times in our minds, we have this idea that they would just like, okay, it's lamb, it's lamb sacrifice time. Let's just go do it. But rather, the liturgy around those sacrifices meant that this lamb was paying for the sins of these people. And this lamb was paying for the specific sins of those people, or maybe it was a turtle dove or whatever else, but it was very specific for the people and for their particular sins. And the same is true of Jesus. Jesus died to forgive you of your sins. The sins that you have committed, the sins that you are struggling with right now, and the sins you haven't even dreamed up yet. Every single one of those sins by name, has already been paid for by the blood of Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian, you've been around church for a long time, it's easy for that to go in one ear and out the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus died for my sins. I know that, I know that. Like, like we, you learn that in like the earliest stages of your Christian life, but stop. Freeze. Listen. Because this needs to sink in. Jesus has paid for your sins, fully, freely. He joyfully suffered so that every single one of your sins was paid for. And that's the source of our freedom as Christians. How would you live if you knew that every single one of your sins, great and small, conscious and unconscious, had already been forgiven? Would you feel a weight off of your shoulders? Would, would some of your fear and anxiety about performing and doing the right thing melt away? What, what, what if guilt and shame had no hold over your mind? If you are in Christ, those benefits can be yours. If you believe that Jesus has redeemed you with his blood and forgiven you for all of your sins. We need to, we need to think through that because it's, it's, it's hard for us as Christians to actually believe that. I think that I need to like, yeah, Jesus paid for my sins, but I need to like make up ground. I need to like kind of do some good things. How many times have we, do, maybe this is autobiographical, maybe this is not you, but when I mess up and I mess up in a relationship with somebody, it is my gut instinct to try to like make it up, like do some extra nice things. Like if I'm like mean to like one of my kids, like I'll be, try to be extra nice to them for the next few days. Right? And I, 
right? I constantly live my life with this like low-key moral tally that I'm trying to, that's Buddhism, not Christianity. Christianity says this, your sins are fully paid for by the blood of Jesus, full stop. Full stop. What kind of gratitude and wonder should that fill us with? Paul says it wants to make him sing the praises of this great Savior, but Paul's not done. Paul's not done with this feast. Paul is still bringing out courses, and they're just as beautiful as the ones that have come so far because he expands the scope of what Jesus' death and resurrection means. He says that in the fullness of time, God has united all things in heaven and on earth. The world of the seen with all of its brokenness and pain and the unseen world of heaven are being bound and brought together. God is making all things new. The resurrection is powering the unity between the physical and spiritual world. All the hostile elements of the world are being tamed. All of the curse and, and hardship and brokenness that we read about last week when Adam and Eve sinned, all of that is getting undone. In fact, when the prophets of the Old Testament would talk about this to try to reach for a metaphor that they could figure out in their brain, they would always go with wild reversals of the natural order. Isaiah says, oh, it's gonna be so crazy. It's gonna be, it's gonna be so wild like lions. Lions are going to take naps with lambs and they're going to be chill. And then, and then Isaiah looks and goes, and, and then not only that, kids will play in cobra's nests and that will also be chill. He, he just, he, he's like reaching for things that our minds go, no, right? I mean, like if we see, if I see a black racer in my yard here in Florida, like it's like, kids don't go outside, you know, snakes out. <laughs> snakes are out, stay inside we're never leaving again, right? No, King Cobras having wrestling matches for fun with seven-year-old boys. Just the way the world is. That kind of mind-blowing, shocking reversal, that unthinkable change is what God is doing. History itself is being transfigured by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The divine architecture of this world will one day be revealed. The shroud and smoke of sin that has clouded our vision to the true nature of this planet, the true nature of ourselves is going to be blown away with a word and we will see beauty like we have never imagined. We will experience peace that we cannot fathom. We will finally stop striving to be whole and all at once find our wholeness and rest in him. And the miracle of the story, the miracle of Advent is that all of this power enters the world in weakness. Jesus enters the world dependent and needy so that he might remake the world for the dependent and needy, you and I. And the only reason that all of this hasn't happened yet is because that love, that adopting, forgiving, redeeming love, God has more people that he wants to show it to. God has more people that he wants to show that absolute, free, gracious love to. And so Paul keeps going because Paul can't help himself. If we have, if we have five courses, why not have six? 
six courses? No, let's do seven. He just keeps bringing the food out. And he points out the final benefit that I want to point us to this morning is that we have an inheritance as the adopted sons and daughters of God and that God has already given us the down payment on that inheritance. When we place our trust in Jesus, that he is the one who can forgive our sins and make all the world right again, he gives us a seal and a guarantee. Um, By the way, there is no more difficult word to spell in the English language than guarantee, besides maybe restaurant. (laughs) And I have typed both of those words way too many times this week. It's a travesty that I just wanted to point out. But we have been sealed and marked and imprinted by the Holy Spirit in our souls. We don't live alone. God himself lives in us who believe. He marks us. He sets us apart. This is, this is the illustration that he's given is of the sort of old Roman wax seals where they'd have the ring that would show that this is, I'm the Caesar, I'm the pro consul, whatever it was that you would seal that this is true and this is who you truly are. God says that the seal that he gives us is the Holy Spirit. The stamp that he marks on your life and mine is sending us the Holy Spirit. We can have peace knowing that God is at work because this seal assures us of it. But even more than that, he is the guarantee of our inheritance. This is the the money or item that you would pay or give to somebody to make sure when you had the rest of the money, you would finish paying it off. When I I was a child, there was this thing called layaway. Um, And all of the olds here will remember what layaway was uh, because you would go and you'd say, okay, I want to buy this video game for $40, but I only have five. But I don't want you to sell that video game to somebody else. So I'll give you $5 now and you hold on to the game. And then every week I'll come in with my $5 allowance and in 10 years you'll give me the game or whatever it was. I don't remember the details. I'm not very good at math. But that sort of the, the reserve for it is exactly what the Holy Spirit does for us. Until the day that God sums up all things and brings the resurrection power to bear on every corner of this earth, we have assurance that it's going to happen through the Holy Spirit in our life. We can listen and trust in him. We can hear his voice when we read the scriptures. He speaks through his people as they are gathered together. He applies grace to our souls when we take communion. We have real fellowship with God whenever we seek him. It is the, the trailer of the greatest movie that is yet to come, guaranteeing that it will. And so we have a new status as holy and blameless. We've been adopted as sons. We have redemption and forgiveness of sins. The world is being made new and united to God. God has given us a seal and guarantee of his love through his Holy Spirit. And all of this is ours. And we didn't earn a single bit of it. You didn't work for it. You didn't toil for it. Jesus has done it for us. And so as we celebrate Advent, Let's remember the way that the story of Jesus begins. Because Jesus didn't want to just announce that this was going to happen by by divine command and fiat. Rather, Jesus chose willingly to accomplish this by coming to this earth and being born in a town outside a town in the middle of nowhere and being laid in a manger because there was no room In the end, Jesus lived his life in mostly anonymity. 
Jesus lived his life mostly in obscurity in order to give us, his brothers and sisters, a new name, a new significance, not based on our actions, but on his. Beloved, let's trust in the Savior. Let's sing his praises. Let's feast at his table. When we look at the world around us and all of its pain and problems, let's find this to be the satisfying solution, the bright and brilliant future, and the one who brings it to us. Let's pray.